0: All right, we'll be reading the whole chapter. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning. And a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. My son, hear the instruction of your father, and do not forsake the law of your mother, for they will be graceful ornament on your head. And chains about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait to shed blood. Let us lurk secretly for the innocent without cause. Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious possessions. We shall fill our houses with spoil. Cast in your lot among us. Let us all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly for their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who is greedy for gain. It takes away the life of its owners. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. She cries out in the chief concourses, at the openings of the gates in the city. She speaks her words. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? For scorners delight in their scorning. And fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would not, and would have none of my rebuke, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when, you, when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm, and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will dwell safely, and will be secure without fear of evil. You may be seated.
1: So we begin our time here uh, this morning I'm going to ask, if you would, to join me in a word of prayer, and we'll, uh, we'll dive in here to the book of Proverbs. Lord, we thank you this day for your many blessings. We praise you for providing your wisdom and instruction. You've given to us understanding and placed before us judgment and justice and equity. To the simple, you have provided a path for prudence, and to the young ones, you have set forth knowledge and discretion. And you've shown us, Lord, what such wisdom and instruction is good for. You've said that a wise man will hear and increase his learning. And you've said that a man of understanding will attain wise counsel with these words. And yet, Lord, you've also put in place some parameters for this word. To get to the beginning of the journey and such wisdom and instruction requires a basic, fundamental understanding of the Lord. You have provided wisdom and instruction for running a godly Race. And the godly race is run with a foundation of fear, fear of you. We see that, Lord, very clearly here in your word. Father, today I pray that your word would settle deep within us, and I pray there would be no fools in this place ones who despise wisdom, despise instruction. Ultimately, despise your word. As we endeavor to persevere all the way to the finish line, I pray, Lord, that we would do so holding on to your wisdom and instruction, seeking your truth each day that we might be found faithful. So, Father, this morning we ask that you do a mighty work in us, through us, and upon us. We ask, Lord, you would change our hearts, renew our minds this morning. That we might look this day a little bit more like your son Jesus. we pray this in His name. Amen. Well we're 10 days, 10 days into the new year, and some of you maybe have taken some steps toward a New Year's resolution. Anybody? Sort of, kind of. No one's willing to raise their hand and say yes for fear that maybe they've already uh, been set backward ten days into the new year. But, you know, we have, some of you may have uh, some, some spiritual, what you call spiritual resolutions. Things you want to, to uh, do better this year. Maybe it has to do with some of the disciplines that we know them as. You know, Bible reading, prayer time, uh, being in the Lord's house, being disciplined in some way, shape or form. In that regard, perhaps you have some resolutions pertaining and connected to your workplace. Um, some, some, some goals in mind, uh, better productivity, greater cash flow for company, higher clientele numbers, whatever that might be. You might also have some resolutions in the home with your family. Could be just time spent with the family. Could be adjustments that are needing to be made with family schedules or relationships that are needing mending in your family, extended family. What we see oftentimes is that the new year is, is a time for new beginnings. And, and something about January 1 moves us, many of us, at least in thought, to consider how we might go about doing some things better over the course of the next 12 months. That's, that's typically the thought. And so as you think this morning about doing better over the course of the next 365 Make that now 355. We're 10 days into this. I'd like to ask you this morning, if there's anything that comes to the surface that you desire to get better at. Take just a moment and think about the question. If you have something to write with, write on. You might jot down a couple answers. Some things that come to the surface, come boiling up to the forefront. What is it that you desire to get better at in this year? It could be a whole number of things that come to mind, perhaps. But I'd like to encourage you and have you consider as you're writing. What you're writing down is on the canvas of your heart. And your heart, the Bible says, is key to understanding where your treasure is. And so when you evaluate the things on this short list and see whether any of these things are treasure worthy items to get better at. The Bible says that we cannot have two masters, right? The Bible talks about not having any rival loves. You know, I heard a message online not too long ago. And just hearing the beginning of it was was enough for me. In an attempt to introduce himself, the particular speaker, young man, he was introducing himself to those gathered that day in that assembly. And in an effort to help the people out there get to know who he was, he wanted to present to them his three loves. Three things that he loved. And this was the list in order that he gave them. Number one, he loved football. And it was sort of spoken, as I was watching it on video, it was sort of spoken in such a way, especially after hearing all three loves. The first one was spoken in such a way that almost gave away his real love. His second love was Taco Bell. I'm not making this up. His third love was the scriptures. Almost seemed to me thrown in as like an afterthought. Now friends, there's a few things wrong with this list. Perhaps you're already thinking of some of those items, things that are wrong. First of all, as I was thinking about this and thinking about the text here this morning, I was reminded that the preached word is not about uh, making us known, but making him known, making his word known. But secondly, the fact that he had three loves is a red flag in and of itself. Love for the world, love for things of the world, the Bible says that that means that we have not the love of the Father in us. First John chapter 2. And as I was trying deep down to give him the benefit of the doubt in what he was sharing, I, my thought went to, you know, the least he could have done was to start with his love for the Scriptures. But somehow, even then, I'm trying to think, okay, well, maybe he was trying to, you know, he thought it more spiritual to begin with football and make progress toward the Scriptures. I don't know. But you see, the trio of items loved landed hard in my heart. How could someone really love football, Taco Bell, and the scriptures? And you think about what love is. How connected are these three items? You know, if you parse them under the umbrella of worldly and spiritually, out of the three, I believe two of them would be under the worldly umbrella and one of them would fall under more of the spiritual umbrella. And if we just go with math, I'm not very good at math, but something like 66%, that would be two-thirds, right? 33% on the other end. So the things loved, two-thirds of my loves are going to things of the world and a third, I'm giving a third, at least I'm saying a third, going over here. In light of the disconnected list, I began to wonder how such a love for the scriptures might exist in the context of loving football and Taco Bell. Did the scriptures make the list because this was a sermon on Sunday morning? If the scriptures are a love for us, if they're a love of ours then what we find when we take up these scriptures and read them is that this God of the scriptures says no rival loves. Amen? That's what he says. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You cannot serve two masters. You shall not have any other gods before me. I encourage each of you to examine your own heart on this issue. With a new year comes a desire to improve. A desire to make course corrections. To get better at some things over the next 12 months and beyond. But as you think about getting better. I'd like you to also ask yourself. What umbrella this might fall under? Is, is your list comprised of just things here in the world? Things that are going to perish. Things that are going to burn up. Will getting better in this area of my life help me to become more selfish or more servant-hearted? Will, will getting better in this area of, of my life, will the outcome be a spotlight on me or my master? As a preface to a study in the book of Hebrews over these next couple of weeks is where I would like to go in these next few Weeks in the book of Hebrews. I'd like to use the time that we have today as a, as a preface, as a launch to Hebrews. I'd like to teach and instruct from the book of Proverbs. I think it's important for you to know that the initial thought of today's message came after hearing last week's message by Mr. Piper. If you have not had a chance to hear that, I'm praying today you'll have an opportunity to do that. Um, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. And one of the takeaways of the message for me... ...was the text was a call. It was a call to persevere in the faith... ...all the way to the finish line. Now I'm assuming something here this morning... ...as I stand before you. I'm assuming... ...that if you are in Christ Jesus this morning... That you too have a desire to persevere in the faith all the way to the finish line. I'm assuming that to be true of you this morning if you're in Christ. Perhaps the acknowledgement of such a desire though is mixed with a certain level of uncertainty regarding the steps that are needed to hit the tape in full stride. We Think about that picture of the runner crossing the tape. He's straining. He's, he's diligently seeking to break the tape of the finish line. He sees it. His eye's on it. And you like the end result. You like the outcome. You can see it in your mind's eye. That picture of one finishing the race. This individual who's running this race is disciplined himself. For this one particular race. He's giving his very best for this race. And you may be here this morning. And you may like that idea of finishing the race well. But maybe you're thinking. I'm not quite sure what it takes to get there. Or maybe you're stuck on the outcome. You see the outcome. You see the finish of the race. And you have little desire and ambition. To do whatever it takes. To make it to the finish line. Operating by faith. Well, the book of Proverbs are written, it says right at the beginning, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to have your Bible open and look at the first verse. The Proverbs of whom? Who's writing this, moved by the Spirit? Solomon. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. They're given to us one out of 66 books in this Bible for the purpose of chronicling wisdom and instruction ...primarily for the next generation. How do I know? If you read chapter after chapter, especially at the beginning... ...how many times does the chapter begin... ...my son, my son, my children, my son, my son. Instruction, wisdom. Proverbs is an excellent parenting manual... ...for instructing the children entrusted to our care. But it serves not as any old parenting manual. This parenting manual contains godly wisdom, godly wisdom, and godly instruction. Remember that all of Scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God, written by holy men, moved along by the Holy Spirit in their writing. Now, why do I point this out? Because, you see, today... There are many folks getting parenting advice from the bookstore, from the psychologist, from the doctor, from a host of other sources. Some of them might actually dispense some good information. Some of that might be helpful. However, the words that are penned in Proverbs and indeed the whole of the scriptures are not only good and helpful, listen, but they are true. These words are true. We don't have to second guess whether or not what we're reading here is true. So any instruction that you receive in this word can be taken with 100% certainty because it's God's word. It's a good reminder for us this morning. It's a great comfort and it ought to spur us onward to get into this book even more. Because you know what? There are no other 100% guarantees out there. But God's word is true. All of God's word is true. There aren't a whole lot of people that believe that and subscribe to that today. Have you noticed that? God's word is true. If God's word is true, then I can with certainty open it up, read it, embrace it, and by faith walk in it. So Proverbs contains godly wisdom and instruction for living this life. For helping us run this race of faith... ...as God would want us to run all the way to the finish line. This is a practical manual for instructing us on life's journey. How many of us like practical advice? Anybody? Okay, a few of us do. Some of you don't really care for it. Practical advice. We like practical advice. I think most of us, if not all of us here... We like the Proverbs for that very matter. It it gives us helpful instruction that we can read. We can read a verse or two and we can go, man, I get that. I, I get that. And there's some things in here we don't get as well as we get when we read Proverbs. We read Proverbs and it's like, I get this. This is good. I get this. It's practical. It's helpful. Well, while it's practical and helpful, it's also inspired by God, just the same as the other books of the Scripture. Proverbs goes a long way to helping you and the generation behind you walk faithfully with the Lord. Proverbs will clearly differentiate between the wise man and the foolish man, between the righteous and the wicked. Lots of black and white here in Proverbs. But it's intended for those who desire to grow in godliness. If you're not interested in godliness, Proverbs isn't going to be a whole lot of help to you. See, I'm making an assumption that most of you here today who are in Christ desire to grow in godliness. And that being the case, Proverbs will then be very helpful, very instructive for you. In fact, if you look at chapter 1, verse 7, it says the fear of the Lord is the what? It's the beginning of knowledge. Elsewhere in chapter 9 it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Wisdom. Right? Here, it's the beginning of knowledge. And he says, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the baseline for knowledge is a fear of the Lord, a, a healthy reverence for, an awe for the God of heaven. Some of you in here, anybody run the, uh, the, the marathon? Indy marathon in May, I think you should have it. Anybody? Nobody in here is running I know we've had a few folks in the church, maybe from time to time, have run it. 13 miles. It's a long way to run. Thousands of participants. I'm going off what folks have told me because I've not run it. But from what I've heard, there are many people who start the race a long way beyond the starting line. There are certain qualified participants who get to start right up front. And then folks probably like myself would be like a mile behind the starting line. And I was thinking about that picture. The proverb writer here says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It got me thinking about running this race of faith. If I do not have respect, all reverence in place for the Lord, it would be comparable to hanging out behind the starting line. Imagine running a race where you never even cross the starting line. And I wonder if this morning there may be some here. Little progress is being made. You find yourself scurrying around from one thing to another. Haphazard living. You want to experience the Lord. You want his help. But your life up to this point, if you're really honest, has been a record of emptiness. It's been hollow at best. That describes your race. The knowledge and wisdom you desperately need has just seemed absent. And the book here says in chapter one that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fearing God, listen, is not word speak, but it's a life lived out in submission to a holy God who requires of his people. Listen, here's what he requires holy living. That's what he requires. In fact, you know, this week in my Bible reading, I, I, I came, I came to that point in my Bible reading already, 10 days into this. I came to Leviticus. Test. It's a test. I came to Leviticus and I learned something I hadn't picked up before. It was great. In chapter 9, after he talks about the the sin offerings and the trespass offerings and the grain offerings and the burn off, remember that part at the beginning of Leviticus? After he talks about all that. In chapter 9, he then gives, Moses does, that is, he gives Aaron and his sons and all of the congregation he gathers them together and essentially gives them a walkthrough, a practice session to explain what these offerings look like, who was to offer them, etc., etc., etc. And at the end of Leviticus chapter nine, the glory of the Lord appears to all the people and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell with their faces to the Saw the glory of the Lord. And then, if you have your Bible, turn, please, to Leviticus chapter 10. All of these wonderful things had happened, and then we get to chapter 10. Then Nadab and Abihu, they were the sons of Aaron, two of the sons. Each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. He had just talked about what to do, how to do this, what you need to wear, how you need to do these things. He gave them step by step by step instruction on how to do all of this. Moses then shows them what they need to do. And now we get to chapter 10. And two of his sons decide to do something that the Lord had not instructed them. What's the result? Verse 2, fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. Not a pretty picture. And they died before the Lord. Look at verse 3. I want you to look at verse 3 with me. Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. There's something, I think... That's there in that phrase. So Aaron held his peace. (laughs) Friends. What we see in verse 3. Is as true for Aaron and his priestly sons. As it is still today. It's still true today. While it is true that those serving at the Lord's altar. The pastors and teachers. Elders and deacons in the assembly today. In the church. They are according to the scripture held to stricter judgment. It's also true. That each one in Christ is called to be holy. Each one in Christ is called to be holy. Leviticus 11, just a chapter later, says in verses 44 and 45, You shall be holy, for I am holy. He says it twice. The people of God are called to be holy for God himself is holy. And this helps explain, I think, in part, how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You see, those who profess to be holy men and women and do not exercise holy living are profaning the words of the Lord. They are endeavoring, listen listen to what's happening. They're endeavoring to live by a profession of faith without the works of faith, which ought to be an evident companion. That's what James 2 says, right? our faith and our works working together. So in other words, you might know the Proverbs, but know not the Lord. You might have some of the Proverbs memorized, in fact, but if you do not have a fear of the Lord, a reverence and awe for the almighty God that's established in your heart, you know a load of facts is what you know. Fools have no fear of the Lord. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In fact, here's what we see in verses 2, 3, and 4 of chapter 1 in Proverbs. Here's what the Proverbs dispense. You want to know what they dispense, what they're useful for? I'll give you the list. It's right here in the scripture. I'm not making it up. Wisdom, instruction, understanding, justice, judgment, equity, prudence, knowledge, discretion. There's a list of nine items that Proverbs gives out. How many of those things would be helpful for us to get better at? (laughs) I think there's a whole lot of us that are praying for wisdom on a regular basis. A whole lot of us that are praying for understanding. A whole lot of us that are praying for his knowledge on an issue in our life. And notice the outcomes and the results are also given in verses 5 and 6. The results of a wise and understanding man taking in these proverbs. Here's the results, the outcome. He will hear an increased learning. And he will attain wise counsel. So we see the book of Proverbs serves then as a primer for persevering in the faith. So as we think about New Year and deep desire down to want to get better... ...here's what we hold on to. Okay, Here's what we hold on to. Big idea. God's word informs us, friends, of what's truly better. God's word informs us of what's truly better. Therefore, if we desire to do better in these days before us, to God's word we must go. I believe Isaiah the prophet said, to the word and to the testimony, right? To God's word we must go. If we want to get better in these days ahead, it's important we begin with a foundational fear, reverence, respect, awe of who this God is that we serve. And understand that we can't do this on our own. We can't run this race on our own. We need his wisdom. We need his instruction. And so the question then for our time this morning as we look at the book of Proverbs according to this wisdom and instruction that's contained within the book of Proverbs what is deemed better? What does Proverbs have to say to you about persevering in the faith all the way to the end? Proverb writer is actually going to tell us something is better than something else. A is better than B. You know, the word better is a comparative word, isn't it? You think, I want to do better. the, the, The question oftentimes is better than what? What are we going to do better than? What did you do that you want to get better at? How do we measure, how do we gauge getting better at something? I'm about to walk you through four things from the book of Proverbs. That God says through Solomon... Are better. Four things. And you can walk away from here. Hearing what these four items are. You can hear what it says and you can do zero about it. You can do that. Or you can jot these things down. Prayerfully take them before the Lord. You can repent of the things that you've clamored to get better at. In the past, things that have dwelt for some time now in your own heart as a cherished treasure. And it might not be football, it might not be Taco Bell, but what is it? What other loves have held you that you need to lay down before the Lord today? That you might run this race that's set before you with all you've got and be found. Here's, what, here's the way we want to be found. We want to be found with a forward bend, lean into the things of the Lord. Should he come back? Remember the question? When he comes back, will he find us faithful? Will he find us running? Or will he find us wandering around at the front of the starting line, having not really gone anywhere in his life? And then, amazing that people can live 30, 40, 50, 60 upwards years and still not get really much past the starting line? Friends, I don't desire to live that way. I hope you don't either. I'm making an assumption that if you're in Christ today, your desire is to run the race. The word gives us some things we can be doing. The word provides instruction. The word gives us some wisdom, counsel. So four things. My prayer is that we pay attention to these things. It's not exhaustive by any means. There's 31 chapters here. But I believe these are helpful starters. Some things to kind of get us moving in that direction. And then perhaps you take these four and then you ask of the Lord yourself. You ask of the Lord yourself how you might actually implement these How the Lord might help you use these in your own life. So what's better? Here's the first one. Wisdom is better. Wisdom is better. This really is an overarching one in in the the, the whole entirety of Proverbs. Wisdom is better. In fact, if we look at chapter 1, we see right out of the gate in verse 2. The Proverbs, what are they useful for? To know wisdom. Verse 2. To know wisdom. What else is it helpful for? Verse 3. To receive the instruction of wisdom. You want wisdom? You want to know what wisdom is? You want to receive wisdom? This is, this is a good book. This is a good book to open up. Wisdom is better. Now remember that Proverbs is concerned with dispensing godly wisdom and in instruction. Okay? Wisdom, uh, we could say wisdom from above, James chapter 3. Remember that wisdom from above, which is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, it's willing to yield, it's full of mercy and good fruits, it's without hypocrisy, without partiality. That's the kind of wisdom we're talking about here, okay? Remember also the man that's writing about this wisdom in First Kings chapter 3, verse 12. We see the Lord speaking to Solomon and the Lord says to Solomon, See, I have given you a wise and understanding heart so that there has not been anyone like you before, nor shall any like you arise after you. That's significant in what we're reading. We're learning wisdom from the one blessed with wisdom and understanding by the Lord himself. We are reading about wisdom from a wise man. Moved by the Spirit. So let's look at some verses here. Chapter 3. Chapter 3, beginning with verse 13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. And the man who gains understanding. For her, that's wisdom's proceeds. Her proceeds are better, there it is, her proceeds are better than the profits of silver. And her gain, in the fine print we could say better. Her gain better than fine gold. You can keep reading on through verse 18. It tells about this wisdom. Look at chapter 8. There's two passages, two texts in 8 that I want to point forward to you. Starting in verse 6. Listen, for I will speak of excellent things. By the way, right here in, in chapter eight, we have what's called in, in in the literature realm a personification. What's personification? Personification is essentially wisdom taking on the form of a person. So wisdom is speaking. All right. So here's let's just understand this. Verse six. Listen, for I, that's wisdom, will speak of excellent things, and from the opening of my lips will come right things. For my mouth will speak truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth. How many of them? All of them. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness. Nothing crooked or perverse is in them. They are all plain to him who understands. And right to those who find knowledge. Receive my instruction and not silver. And knowledge rather than choice gold. Listen to verse 11. For wisdom is better than rubies. And all the things one may desire cannot be compared with That's wisdom. If you go a few verses later in chapter 8, starting in verse 17, wisdom says, I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently will find me. Those who seek me diligently will find me. Guess what? Wisdom's not going to just pop up automatically. There's something to be done on our end. There's running a race. Riches and honor are with me. Enduring riches and righteousness. Listen, enduring riches, not the the stuff that's gonna fly away one of these days. Enduring riches. The spiritual riches are with wisdom. Look at verse 19. My fruit is better. There it is. My fruit is better than gold. Yes, than fine gold. And my revenue better than choice silver. If you skip over to chapter 16, verse 16, one other verse I'll give you. How much Better to get wisdom than gold. And to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. So what do we glean from these passages? Let me give you three things. First of all, we see godly wisdom is worth it. It's worth it. It's better than the finest gold. It's better than silver. It's better than rubies. We could translate it today. Better than the dollar bill. Wisdom godly wisdom is also incomparable incomparable remember Proverbs eight eleven. it says that all things one may desire cannot compare to her to wisdom I think a third thing we see in these scriptures is that godly wisdom produces better fruit godly wisdom produces better fruit my fruit is better says in chapter 8 her proceeds and profits are better You want to get better in the new year? Proverbs says, pursue godly wisdom. Go after it. Get wisdom. Wisdom is the principal thing. Go for it. Make every effort to get it. It's worth it. Read Proverbs 2, the first eight or nine verses. Nothing compares to it. And it produces fruit and outcomes that rise far above dollar signs and diversified portfolios, friends. Lots of folks who have bought the lie thinking that if they just had more money, if they just had a larger bank account, if they just had an extended credit line, if they just had a larger sum of money at their disposal, things in my life would be better. Pursuing the dollar bill as a love, friends, can pull you ...away from godly contentment. That's the context in which that passage in Timothy 6 speaks of. Contentment, on the other end of contentment. See, when we love and have a love for money, it can send us reeling. It says in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10... ...the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil... ...for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness. And listen to what it says... And pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Who's doing the piercing? They themselves are. Pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Because why? Because they have a love for this money, their greediness. So, wisdom is better. What else is better? The second one is less, less is better. Less is better. Now, there's some practical reasons why less is better. To all of you who've been cleaning out closets and garages and attics and storage spaces, can I get an amen to less is better? Amen? Amen. Less is better. Practical. Real practical. You know, the less you have, the less you've got to clean up. Right? There's some real practical advantages to having less. And I believe the Proverbs here instruct us in two ways as we think about less is better. First of all, let's think about less in terms of stuff. Let me give you a few passages. Proverbs 15, verses 16 and 17. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord. Remember, we talked about that in chapter one, verse seven. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure than a lot with trouble. We keep reading 17. Better is a dinner with herbs or vegetables where love is than a fatted calf a feast with hatred. Proverbs 16:8 says, "Better is a little with righteousness Than vast revenues without justice. Or Proverbs 17, verse 1. Better is a dry morsel. Oh, think about that for a moment. A dry morsel. Mmm, tasty, yummy. Better is a dry morsel with what? Quietness. Than a house full of feasting with strife. You know, the rich young ruler, you might remember the story. He asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor. And here's the outcome. You will have treasure in heaven. The invitation for this man was that he would receive treasure from heaven. And Jesus says, come, take up the cross, follow me. And then that verse, this is Mark chapter 10, verse 22, tragic verse. It says, but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful. Why? For he had great possessions. You see, lots of stuff can be a snare. Acquiring lots of stuff can just weigh on you. The more you have, the more you probably worry about what you have. The rich young man walked away from what was far better. And what kept him from taking up Jesus' offer? The one thing he lacked. The ability to let go. The ability, look, the ability to let go of his stuff... That had controlled him. He couldn't let go of his vast possessions. So less is better in terms of stuff. But I think also the Proverbs would tell us that less is better in terms of stature and position. Proverbs 16 verse 19 says, Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Or Proverbs 19 verse 1 says, better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool. Or Proverbs 28 verse 6, better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one perverse in his ways though he be rich. And Proverbs nineteen twenty two says, what is desired in a man is kindness. And a poor man is better than a liar. Did you hear that? A poor man is better than a liar. What else do we know about lying, by the way? Lying lips are what? An abomination. A poor man is better than a liar. Proverbs says that less is better. And yet the world says, get all you can. Proverbs says that it's better to be poor and hang out with the lowly than try to be a somebody in the world's eyes operating as the world might operate. See, unless you have a fundamental understanding of the Lord and his ways, you'll be tempted to close the book of Proverbs at this point. Thank you, but no thanks. (laughs) And some of you, I think, are intellectually agreeing with the less is better idea, but in practice... And this this is something between you and the Lord. In practice, perhaps you've been pursuing more. More stuff, more accolades, more press clippings, more friends. And you know what I'm talking about when I say friends. Pursuing some kind of following. Let me remind you that the things of this world, while needful at some level for our stay here, they're going to perish This world and all the stuff in it, it's going to burn up. We're instructed in Matthew's gospel by Jesus himself. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures where? Here on earth. Why? And he gives a practical reason. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. You got stuff, guess what? There's other people that want to steal it. There's other people that want to take it. Jesus gives a very practical reason for not storing up things here on earth. But he follows that up with something way more important. He says instead, he's not against storing things up. It's where we're storing them. He says, store up treasures in heaven. moth and rust aren't going to touch that. Thieves aren't going to touch that. Jesus called the rich ruler to this very thing. Treasure in heaven. He called him to that very thing. And he walked away. To him, his great possessions were deemed better. He deemed his great possessions better than what Jesus had to offer. But what else is better according to Proverbs? Here's the third. We've got wisdom is better, we've got less is better. Here's the third one self control is better. Self control is better. A uh, primary passage here I want, I want you to look at is, is Proverbs 16, verse 32 says, he who is slow to anger. There's there's a part right there. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit, we could put in brackets, is better than he who takes a city. He who is slow to anger, he who rules his spirit. There's some supplemental verses here that might be helpful. Proverbs 17, 27 and 28. He who has knowledge spares his words. And a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. Proverbs 25, verse 28. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. In Proverbs twenty nine eleven. a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. See, self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And I believe that's another evidence that this book of Proverbs is pointing to godly wisdom, godly instruction. Self-control happens as the Spirit of God guides the spirit of man down a godly path. We oftentimes think of self-control as only internal. But self-control, just like love, joy, peace, patience, and the whole list in Galatians 5, manifests itself outwardly, right? Outwardly. Visible for all to see. Self-control is easily seen through our words and actions, isn't it? The driver who's waiting at the four-way stop. And you've waved him to go. And he waves back at you. Not once, not twice, but three times. And finally, he steps on the gas pedal and he goes out in front of you and he looks at you through his window, talking at you through his window. Maybe doing some other things as well. His face, you can tell, is beat red. He's mad. He's angry. That person is an example of one who does not have and is is giving evidence of a lack of self-control. Just one practical example. But I think we see practical examples all around us. You know, people today who have been wrong, people who have been cheated out of something, manipulated in some way. The world would say that you have a right to get even. The Bible says, cast your cares upon the Lord. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The world says that you have a right to gossip and tell others about how you've been wronged. The world says it's okay to write all about it online for the world to see. The world says that you should just file a lawsuit and get whatever you can from this other party. The Bible advocates self-control. It's on the other end of out of control. Have you ever seen someone out of control? Have you ever been out of control? When we think about that and apply it to ourselves, those times when we've not exhibited self-control, It's pretty painful to think about those moments. And sometimes it's nothing more than an outburst of wrath. By the way, an outburst of wrath is listed not under the fruit of the Spirit, but under the acts of the flesh in that same Galatians 5 passage. The fool vents all his feelings. And thinks it's okay. Feels as though he's justified by just letting it all out. When you have no rule over your spirit, the Bible likens you to a city broken down without walls. Think about that picture for a moment. Probably reminds you of the book of Nehemiah. Remember how the walls were down? What happens when the walls are down in a the city? They become vulnerable, don't they? Open to the work of the enemy. In this case, the enemy of your soul. The one who wants to come in and get a foothold. The one who wants to come in and, and steal, kill, and destroy. When you're angry about something... ...others usually notice, don't they? It says, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. It's Better than the mighty. Slow to anger is better... Anger is an emotion given to us by God, but anger is oftentimes expressed in this out-of-control fashion. And others do notice when you're angry because oftentimes it, it comes in dramatic fashion. A rolling of the eyes, a body language that says and speaks volumes. These outbursts of wrath. Words spoken with the intent to harm the other person. An angry heart reveals itself. This is something that I've said time and time and time again as a parent. As I've given instruction to our own children. An angry heart reveals itself with angry words and angry actions. When you're speaking angry words and you're taking angry actions, it tells us a lot about what the heart looks like. Being slow to anger is thought better than the mighty. You know, that in itself says a lot about the mighty, doesn't it? Think about it. And yet, how often do we desire to be mighty, to be the top dog, to be the one who leads the way, to be the one who climbs the mountain? Is it possible that the mighty are mighty because they crush other people in their path? You know, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking years ago, it was winter, it was cold, there was a little bit of snow on the ground at the time, and I was going to, to visit a friend of mine from the church who happened to work at a, a car rental place. And I was going there to pick something up. It was going to be a quick drop-off, and I had the, our two oldest boys with me. They were both still in car seats. <laughs> it was a long time ago. And I remember getting there and, getting, and going and meeting with my friend, and he said, hey, go to the other side of the car shop, I, I, I've got a surprise for you. Okay, so I got back in the car, pulled around to the other side of the car shop. When I met him on the other side, he was standing next to a car. Not just any car. He was standing to, uh, next to this, the latest and greatest all-black Hummer. And he had it warmed up. He said, hey, I want to let you take a test drive. So he helped me get the car seats and we got the boys. I don't even know if you remember this, but the boys actually got the ride in the back seat of a Hummer. I got in the car. And, and, you know, listen, it's been years since this event took place, but it's so memorable. I still remember driving down the street, seeing all these little cars. It was so much fun. And, and I felt indestructible in that tank of a car. And the thought actually occurred to me and it formed in my mind. I I remember it and that's why I'm expressing it even now because it was there as I was driving. How easy it would be to just simply crush those little cars next to me. You know, I'm afraid that too often with our lips, this is what happens when anger boils to the surface and comes out of control. We can squash people with our words. How many harmful words have been spoken out of anger in our lives? Self-control is better. Proverbs 15 says that a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of the fool pours forth foolishness. That's what he dispenses. Gentleness is better. A soft answer is better. Being slow to anger is better. Self-control is better. And this flies directly in the face of the mighty who are used to getting their way, no matter who might get squashed in the process. One other thing to note here. You want to gauge how you're doing in this arena of self-control, angry speech. If you truly want to get better in this, take inventory of what's happening in your home. See, because everyone here tends to put forward their best appearance on Sunday mornings in the Lord's house. But what's the evidence look like inside your walls, inside your home? Ask your wife, men. Women, ask your husbands. Children, ask your parents. Parents, if you be so bold, ask your children. Where things need to be corrected... Be sure to take it early and often to the Lord in prayer. Repent. Recognize this as a sin. Turn to God. Know that your household, listen, your household can be set aflame by the poison of this little member of the body called the tongue, which emanates from an angry heart, one one that lacks self-control. It can happen. So wisdom is better. Less is better. Self-control is better. What else is better? Rebuke is better. Yes, I said rebuke is better. And before you laugh and walk out of here, let me show you what the Proverbs say. Chapter 27, verse 5. Open rebuke. Here it is. Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. If I was to package love carefully concealed, I might word it this way. Open rebuke is better than safe love. Safe love. What's safe love? Well, it occurs when you are more concerned about what the other person will think of you than simply telling them the truth. You're worried about what their response might be to you, so you choose to play it safe. Anybody ever played it safe in a relationship? This is what I'm convinced that we all need to get better at. I think it pierces our depths because we've been in situations where a rebuke was needed, and yet we opted to play it safe. I think love carefully concealed is an interesting poetic way to write it. The Bible elsewhere tells us that we are to speak the truth one to another. Why? For we are members of one another. Ephesians 4.25 says. We're members of one another. We ought to be speaking the truth. In that same Ephesians, we're called, in fact, to speak truth in love to one another. We don't just speak truth harshly. We speak it in love to one another. Speaking the truth may very well include rebuke. Listen, if there's something from the word... That's blatantly being disregarded, mishandled, abused, maligned in my life. I would hope that a brother or a sister would speak up. Open rebuke is better than playing it safe. How often have you played it safe in a relationship? And all the while, all the while, you know something needs to be spoken here. An issue needs to be addressed with this other brother or sister. Now, before you launch out of here with a license now to openly rebuke people, I'd like to add this. I think it's important to add this. Just as we need to understand that open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed, so too we need to understand the implications of this, right? The implications. Here's where I'm going with it. There's giving the open rebuke and then there's receiving the open rebuke. I'm fairly certain we handle the giving much better than we do the receiving. Listen to a few other supplemental verses here. Proverbs 15, verse 32. He who disdains instruction, despises his own soul, but he who heeds rebuke gets understanding. Did you hear that? You heed a rebuke, you get understanding. That's the wisdom and counsel from God's word. Or, or Proverbs 17.10 says that rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a hundred blows on a fool. <laughs> or Proverbs 29.1 that says he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. There's a warning right there for not receiving a rebuke, friends. A rebuke is not in order just because someone does something that you don't like can we be clear on that you don't go to rebuke somebody just because they don't do something that you think they ought to do that's not the basis of a rebuke the scriptures are profitable for rebuke aren't they in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 and 17 it tells us what God's word is profitable for profitable for doctrine right profitable for rebuke Profitable for correction, profitable for instruction and righteousness. We ought to know all four of those, friends. One of those four is rebuke. God's word is profitable for rebuke. So listen, here's what this means. That the scriptures then are given in part, as we think about rebuke, they're given in part to help us help one another persevere to the finish line. Rebukes, it seems, as we look at the text and understand the purpose of the text, Rebukes are a part of the necessary work that the Lord desires in each one of his children. So if he's provided these scriptures and said that they're profitable at some level for rebuke, then we ought to exercise both ends of this, the giving and the receiving. When When it comes, rebuke that is, when it comes, we need to practice heeding it, looking to the word... Knowing that the Bible says we become wiser because of it as we receive it. Instead of viewing it as an embarrassment or a belittling, we should view it as a means of persevering in the faith. Listen, this goes back to what we talked about last week. View it as a means of persevering in the faith by means of the community. The parts working ...together, connected to one another. See, God has seen fit to bring his people together... ...to draw them together by his spirit, by his holy word... ...and we ought to be a people calling one another... ...to holy living, exhorting one another... ...all the more as we see the day approaching. You see, there's no time, friends, to play it safe. I hope this makes sense. The giving and the receiving open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. So godly wisdom is better. Less is better. Self-control is better. And rebuke is better. I didn't make these up. The proverb writer is telling us, in fact, that these things really are better than their counterparts. They're better than what the world would uphold as our worthy pursuit. I want to stress once more the significance of God's Word saying that something is better. When he says it. When he says it. We can put it in the bank as true. Okay. God's word does not lie. His instruction is always delivered in truth. Now it might be a little painful to hear at times. Might hurt. Might be difficult to hear and receive. Sometimes that truth does. Hurt. <laughs> Especially if we've been operating in sin. Rebuke is not pleasant to receive. The text isn't advocating you put on a happy face when someone rebukes you. But it does produce exactly what God desires in you. repentant transformed hearts, renewed minds, holy living, when you take him at his word and you receive what he says into your life, when you choose to submit yourself to his ways, to humbly come before him asking not only what would you have me do, Lord, but also, Lord, what needs to go in my life? What I need to get rid of in my life? What chaff in my life needs to be blown away, Lord? He can and he will show himself strong in your life. Remember, the Bible says he's looking for loyal hearts. Hearts that are loyal to him. I'd like to end by having you turn to the book of Philippians for just a moment. Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 21. For to me, Paul's writing here, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit... ...from my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two... ...having a desire to depart and be with Christ... ...which is far better. Far better. Did you get that? Far better, Paul said. Far better. He writes these words, let's remember, from prison. And the threat of death is no stranger to Paul... And yet in sharing his own personal testimony, he encourages each one of us in Christ who are desiring to persevere all the way through to the finish line. Whether I live or die, I'm pursuing the things that are moving me toward Jesus Christ. Paul says, if I go on living, he says, to live is Christ. Think about that. To live is Christ. Living for him is equated with labor and fruit is the outcome of that labor. Remember what we said about wisdom? Her proceeds, her profits are better. Personified, my fruit is better. We see when we labor for the Lord, that fruit, there's fruit there that ought to be evident in our laboring for the Lord. If I die, Paul says, to die is deemed gain. How many of us view dying in that way? Gain. Dying, he says, I get to be with Christ, which is far better Far better. I'm afraid, friends, we've lost what it is to live here because we've lost sight of what it is to be there with our Lord. It's far better to be with Christ. And and dying is only, we need to understand this, dying is only far better when you are in Christ Jesus. To die outside of knowing this Jesus Christ in an intimate, vibrant relationship is far worse. For those in Christ, what are you asking God for in these days ahead? As a child of the king, what are you hoping to get better at in this calendar year? And by what means do you hope to get better? Today's words from the Proverbs, I pray will provide a jump start for getting better, for growing in godliness. Godly wisdom is better than all the wisdom the world has to offer. Less is better. The world says, get all you can. More is better. Self-control is better. The world says, do what you need to do in order to get ahead. Even if that means you squash people in the path. Rebuke is better. The world around us cultivates this independent spirit and turns a deaf ear to hearing any rebuke that might come. I got this figured out. I got it all taken care of, the world says. Let's have an eye Friends, always fixed heavenward. No matter how great you think something here on earth is, know that it is far better to be with Christ. To live, which if you are breathing and you can check your pulse right now, to live is Christ. To live means that there ought to be in my life fruitful labor going on, happening, abundant life. And so let's live right now in preparation for that day when we live in our heavenly home with Jesus and we know what a day it's going to be. And listen, friends, I'm pretty certain of this. I'm pretty certain of this based on what I know to be true here. What it's gonna be like in that day. When I'm with Christ in heaven. There's nothing here that will be any better. Than what we're going to be experiencing with our Lord. It will truly be a wonderful day to behold. We get to see Jesus. We get to be with him. Praise God. Amen. Let's pray. Father we thank you for this good word. And we thank you for this book of Proverbs that gives us wisdom, gives us encouragement, gives us instruction on how to live a godly life. It's not just some book that's giving helpful hints. It's not a book that just gives us three steps or four keys. Father, there's so much here and we've just skimmed the surface this morning. Father, I pray that what you have allowed to, to go forth, Lord. Your word says and promises that it won't return to you empty or void. And I pray, Lord, that it accomplishes the very purpose that you desire for it as it went forth today in the hearts of your people who are here. And Father, we would receive these things that we would understand and, 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 and run this race. Understanding wisdom is better. Understanding that less is better. Understanding that self-control is better and rebuke is better. Lord, teach us these things and I pray we would be submissive to your leading in our lives that we might receive these instructions, that we might grow in these instructions. And Father, if need be, spend some time before you with these four laid out before you that we've talked about this morning. And just asking of you what needs to happen. What needs course correction? Father, I pray that we would all be operating with a spirit of humility. Ready to hear what you have to tell us. Ready to listen when someone else, another brother speaks to us with the word open. May we be responders of your word as it comes our way. Father, I pray that we would all be pursuing you in the days that we have left that all of us would be found. I I picture it, Lord, uh, uh, several in the body running toward the tape, running toward the finish line, running with all their might. I pray that we might run in such a way as to get the prize. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.